don't know who to vote for tonight I got the feeling that something ain't right And the media is lying on the air And I'm wondering how to get y'all to care And TV to the left of me, Neocon to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you Hello, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Stuck in the Middle. I'm your host, Blake, and today I'm joined by my sidekick, Josh. Hey. Well, uh, since this is our inaugural episode, I want to maybe provide a background of some of the topics that we'll discuss, the, the goal of the podcast here. I've been a political junkie for the past two decades, and if any of you have followed some of the things that I've written or talked about, you know that I follow politics, news, and current events closely. So I'm deciding to take this into a new format. We're going to go from more of the written format to sort of a spoken podcast, and we'll cover a wide range of topics. I uh, hope to cover the 2020 election over the next few months, so we'll highlight some of the current events surrounding the election, maybe some of the updates in, in candidates that are dropping out, fundraising updates, updates of election results as the primary rolls on. We'll also talk about uh, specific policy issues and perhaps some proposals to those policy issues that, that our country is facing right now. We'll touch on news, current events, and all things politics. So if you too are a political junkie like me, I hope you'll tune in to, to the podcast. And I'll have Josh along with me for the ride to discuss some of the topics that we bring up. Uh, and a background about myself. I consider myself to be a moderate Republican but I recognize that all issues are nuanced, and I want to look at each issue in a pragmatic way. So when I approach policy solutions, I'm not looking at it through the lens of a political party. I'm really looking at it through the lens of how can we best tackle this, that, this issue for the, for the uh, benefit of the American public. So um, let's get started a little bit. As I record more episodes, feel free to provide me with some of your feedback and suggestions. Please send topic ideas that you'd like to discuss. We'll make sure to get through those and kind of take a deep dive into each of those issues. I'll also plan to have guests on the show to discuss current issues and events uh, that are relevant to that particular guest. So as we roll along, like I said, please feel free to give us your suggestions. We're just getting started with this, but we welcome any and all feedback from our viewers. Sounds good. Perfect. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you about real quick is... Uh, do you feel like moderate is kind of given a, a, a bad rap from both sides? I do. I mean, I think that if you look at uh, the state of affairs right now, especially the way our primaries are set up, uh, moderates are really losing their place in politics. If, you, if you're a Republican and you vote the way that your party doesn't like just on even one issue, then you run the risk of having a primary opponent in your election that is going to try to, let's say, out Republican you or, yeah. or um, kind of flank you from the right. And same thing on the on the Democratic side. You see that uh, happening right now. If people don't think that you're progressive enough or that your policies are left enough, then, then you're going to face a primary opponent on the left side. And I really think that's problematic because that's not necessarily where the electorate is. That may be where our politics are because of the structure of our political system, but I don't think that's where most of our electorate is. If you really pull them, they're they're not polarized like like it would be like it would seem. And, and that's largely due to the fact that not a lot of people show up in the primary. They wait till the general election, so it gives too much power to people that do show up in the primary. And, 
and we're in Texas, so uh, as you know, a lot of the primary elections end up becoming the general election. And uh, we, we live in a state where not a lot of our congressional seats are super competitive, so the election ends up being the primary election, and the, the primary winner in a certain political party is going to be, by default, the general election winner, and they really have no competition. So they gear up really for the primary, and they try to recruit as many voters as possible. And we know that that uh, voter turnout is extremely low in primary elections. And that's kind of where we came up with the name for this, is stuck in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Stuck in the middle is, is I'm trying to represent where I think most of the electorate is. All, although my listeners uh, are not going to uh, you know, be with me on every single issue, I think that most people that are going to tune into this podcast, and really most voters, can find common ground or middle ground with anybody that they're in the room with. Yes, we have... Uh, polarizing political figures and um, people sort of latch onto those figures in the absence of other options. But I think that most voters, most of the electorate, most of the people that will tune in are going to be somewhere in the middle of that spectrum. All right. Well, uh, what's your first uh, topic? What are we talking about? So I want to I want to start out by talking about sort of the state of the 2020 election and um, and we'll kind of uh, sort of uh, handicap the election as I see it right now. And then uh, we will kind of add to that as the episodes progress. We'll talk more about uh, the state of the election as we get further into the election cycle. All right. Welcome back, everybody. Our second segment here is going to focus on the state of the 2020 election. So as, uh, as Josh and I were discussing in our first segment, really uh, the primary process is where a lot of the, the meat and potatoes of the, of the election process is decided. So I want to paint a picture of where we're at with the 2020 primary elections. You know, this year is obviously going to, or this coming year is going to be the 2020 election, and that means that we have an incumbent election. As, as you all know, uh, presidents have the ability to serve for two terms if they choose to do so, and if they're reelected to the second term. So Donald Trump, by nature, will be the incumbent nominee. Um, you know, I haven't. I've. I was thinking back uh, through the last several presidential elections. It's been a very long time since a. Uh, incumbent has been challenged successfully by their own political party. So we can really. Uh, unless something dramatic happens, we can count on Donald Trump being the nominee. So, uh, yes, there is going to be a Republican nomination primary election, but we can assume for all intents and purposes that Donald Trump will be the nominee for, for the Republican side. So I'll focus most of this segment on talking really about the Democratic primary and where I see the state of things. Um, as, if you've been following along, you see that we've got still more than a dozen uh, you know, candidates for the Democratic primary. There, there are really, I think, two segments uh, or two uh, factions within the Democratic Party right now. There's the progressive or the left-wing sect of the Democratic Party. Uh, that really includes Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, uh, Beto O'Rourke, and Julian Castro. I would actually lump them into that as well. Really, I used to consider Beto O'Rourke to be sort of a moderate candidate, but with some of his more recent stances <laughs> on um, on guns and, and other issues, and specifically the tax-exempt status of religious institutions, he's really drifted a little bit more to the left, and I would actually categorize, categorize him further in, into the progressive wing. Um, what are your thoughts on that, Josh? Yeah, I think he's just struggling to get attention, so he's trying to go more and more extreme. I think just maybe even just to get his 
name talked about again, maybe. I, I don't know. He's really struggling. Like, if you look at the Vegas odds of him, he's in, like, tied for last place with Amy. So. And, and uh, I actually would agree with that. I mean, you see that uh, when his poll numbers have really fallen and other candidates have sort of dominated the headlines and dominated the news cycle, he has kind of adopted these uh, these positions that uh, probably would be considered uh, – sort of left-leaning positions that may not really gain support among some moderate voters. And you've actually seen some of the um, some of the other candidates in the election distance themselves or refuse to agree uh, with some of the things that he's proposing. So that's kind of why I would put him in the in the progressive wing of the party. On the on the other side of the Democratic Party, we have really the, think about your traditional candidates or your more moderate Democratic candidates. Within that, I'd put Mayor Pete Buttigieg of uh, of South Bend, Indiana. I'd put former Vice President Joe Biden in that category, and I'd also put Amy Klobuchar, the senator from uh, Minnesota, in that category as well. I think those are really um, your your traditional candidates that they're trying to capture the moderate voters within the party. You don't think Andrew Yang's moderate? Uh? I think he's kind of moderate. Uh, Andrew Yang is an interesting candidate. I think he's really, um, if I dare say so, I think he's almost the the Donald Trump of the Republican. I mean, of the Democratic side. And I mean that when I when I say that, I mean that he's really um, capturing voters that are struggling, those that are worried about job creation, those that are worried about where their where their next paycheck's going to come from. He's addressing issues like automation and the, the new age economy. Donald Trump, he captured people because they were disillusioned with politics, but they he really captured those voters that were worried about manufacturing jobs. Where's their, um, when's the next plant closure going to happen if you're in right. the Midwest? And Andrew Yang, yeah, I could see him really as sort of, sort of a moderate candidate, but uh, wouldn't you think he's kind of a pragmatic one as well? Yeah, I actually liked uh, when he, I think he was on the Ben Shapiro show, and it was the first time I heard of him, and I actually liked a lot of his answers, you know. Uh, now, whether or not he'll get, you know, tra enough traction, who knows, but I mean, Vegas has him moving up to right behind Joe Biden on, on odds. What are his odds now? <laughs> uh, plus 1,200. So um, uh, just for comparison, you know, Donald Trump is the favorite. So he's uh, uh, minus 160. Oh, no. Uh, sorry. He's plus 120. So, you know, you you bet $120 to win a hundred, right? And and nobody expected Andrew Yang to be on the radar at this point in the in the process. I mean, he he didn't have the sort of uh, you know dinner time conversation recognition level of some of the other candidates running. Right. So that speaks to his ability to talk really pragmatically to the voters. I mean, they got him above Bernie Sanders right now, which is crazy, and that might be due to the heart attack. But uh, this was as of. You know, just a few days ago, and um, I think he's actually qualified for the next debate. You know, yeah. as they as the Democratic Party has strengthened the requirements for uh, for being accepted into the debates, he's actually made the next debate as well. So his name's going to continue to be relevant. I think that if you look at his proposals, the one that uh, is gotten the most attention is his proposal around universal basic income, where everybody over the age of eighteen is given a thousand dollars a month to pay uh, just to basically meet their basic needs. Um, you know, that's an interesting policy proposal that I'd like to study a little bit more, but I don't think it's one that's extraordinarily popular right now Yeah. Uh, because perhaps people uh, would be uneasy with just uh, what they would consider the government handing out money to every single person. Yeah, I'd have to see – before I got on board on something as crazy as that, I'd have to see the numbers because like, he would wipe out traditional welfare and replace it with this, which – 
definitely has a lot less overhead because I sure. mean you spend a crap ton of money in in uh, just bureaucratic overhead expenses to pass out welfare. So which has this he, was eliminate a lot of that? So. Has he come on the record uh, wanting to eliminate all the other forms of welfare because that would make the proposal a bit more interesting? Yeah, I. It's been a little while since I heard him. Uh, that's what I remembered from it. But I mean, this has been a while. So I think don't if he hold me to that. if he makes that case where he says, you know, we're going to eliminate other forms of welfare in, in terms of like food stamps or uh, other government benefits to benefit those that are vulnerable or those that are in need, and replace it with a universal basic income for all Americans, I think it'd gain more traction. I also think that you have to see what does the spreadsheet look like. I mean, yeah. how much that how much is that going to cost? I mean. Uh, there's people that don't pay uh, $12,000 a year in taxes, and so they'd be getting a rebate back from the federal government of $12,000. What does that look like in terms of our federal debt and federal deficit? Yeah. So the those two wings of the party are what I see. You've got the progressive wing and the moderate wing. Uh, I also find Tulsi Gabbard to be a little bit of an interesting candidate, and you've seen her that she's been attacked a lot by some of the candidates <laughs> running for president, and even Hillary Clinton, who has previously run for president. And I think the reason that she's come under so much attack is because she her idea of foreign policy is she really wants to pull back our involvement in a lot of the foreign affairs that we're engaging in right now. She doesn't see a place for the United States uh, in terms of military intervention in the Middle East. She'd like to scale back some of the military bases that we have around the world. She would like to see us bring more of our troops home. And uh, that, that position, while there is some support for it, has also met a lot of opposition. You've seen a lot of people that have attacked that policy proposal, and she's kind of st stood firm on that. And she has a lot of uh, she has a lot of credibility on the issue, with you know being the fact that she is in the reserves right now and she has served her country. But it is uh, not necessarily you know her proposals are not necessarily popular all the way around. So. Uh, when we look at those two sects, I think there's a lot of parallels with the 2016 election on the Republican side. You know, if you think back to that election, which was only, you know, three years ago, we saw that there was more than 16 candidates running for the Republican primary. And, it, you know, we could really sort of categorize some of those candidates in the same way. And I, I find myself wondering, is the Democratic Party not looking at what happened in 2016 and and using using those that result as as a learning point. So, uh perhaps what would have happened if John Kasich, Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush had said, "Okay, we know we're sharing a lot of the same voters. Which one of us can go out there and best represent our particular part of the party? Can we consolidate our voters and maybe we would have a different nominee than what we currently have?" So, would Donald Trump have been the nominee in the Republican Party if 16 other candidates weren't <laughs> running? We often saw that his his ceiling was really 35, 40% in the election. His his voters stuck with him in the primary election, but there was you know, 50, 60 plus percent of the Republican Party during the primary process that wasn't comfortable with him as the nominee, but they split their votes so many ways Donald Trump still maintained his his particular segment of that support, and that ultimately led to him being the nomination. So, although I think it's unlikely on the Democratic side because you know you have a lot of people with a lot of pride running for president that they think they're the best candidate or they think their breakthrough moment is coming, I have to ask myself: Would there be some benefit from 
Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Beto teaming up and saying, okay, we're going to pick one of us to be the sort of progressive leader within the party. And then on the moderate side, Joe Biden, Amy Klobuchar, and Mayor Pete, they got together and said, which one of us can best uh, best beat this segment of the party and emerge as the nominee? You actually saw Ted Cruz take an interesting approach in the primary. He named Carly Fiorina as his vice president prior to him winning the nomination. He didn't win Which, the nomination. It, it had never happened before, right? No, I had not seen that happen. You know, Generally, you, you uh, are the, the nominee or the presumptive nominee before you even begin having discussions on who your VP is going to be. But uh, Ted Cruz really – he saw that Donald Trump was a formidable opponent, and he wanted to try to steal some of those voters. So he and Carly Fiorina teamed up and said, if you choose us as your as, – if you choose me, then I'm going to choose Carly Fiorina as my running mate. I yeah. wonder if uh, the Democratic Party could do something similar. Could, could Bernie Sanders say, okay, if you choose me as the nominee, Elizabeth Warren has agreed to be my running mate, or vice versa? Um, I don't think that's uh, likely because uh, both of them really want to be president. But if they were looking at this strategically, I think this is something they should consider. They have Warren at the top of the list of Democrats right now. Vegas does. Yeah, I think that's because uh, she has, she's been getting a lot of media attention, um, you know, um, I hope Bernie Sanders continues to heal, but I do think his recent health event with his heart attack has not has not benefited him and has actually probably politically benefited Elizabeth Warren. I'm glad to see he's on the mend. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders is an important part of the conversation in American politics, whether you agree with him or don't agree with him. So I'm glad to see that he's um, you know back and doing healthy. And just from a human perspective, we want him to we want him to be on the mend. Yeah. I really like him. Uh, I don't agree with a lot of his politics, but what I do like about him is he seems sincere, and that's rare in politics. Absolutely. Today. I yeah. mean, since he ran for president in the 2016 election, he has had some bold, some might call them radical policy ideas, um, but he has stuck with them. He's He's been consistent. He's not afraid to, to say, yeah, we're going to raise your taxes, but here's the benefits that you're going to see from this. And so yeah. um, you've got other politicians that say, well, you're, I'm not going to raise your taxes or won't answer the question, but we are going to provide this to you. And I think elections really are, you know, uh, about or should be about people being honest with you, politicians being honest. And I know that seems like an oxymoron these days, but but uh, we our society would benefit more from, you know, honest political discussions. Yeah, so I would agree. I think. I think everyone below Pete should drop out. Yeah. So, so Bernie, Pete, they got Andrew Yang up here, Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren. Should be all that's left. Like, so why do they still have the bottom half of these guys? Why is really you have to ask yourself why is Beto still in the race? Why is Julian Castro still in the race? Really, why is Amy Klobuchar still in the race? Tom Steyer, the billionaire candidate, he's actually an interesting candidate. Uh, so he is self-funding his campaign. He is a self-made billionaire who's he started the need to impeach movement about two years ago he kind of formed a political action committee that was charged with uh you know spreading the message about why donald trump should be impeached he really never gave any indication that he was going to run for president but he jumped in really late he used his own money to to uh form his campaign and he's actually qualified for several of the debates or, or the next debate when's, um, when's the last point that you can jump in and announce so uh, 
I'd have to double check on that, but I but there is a there is a federal election deadline with that. Um, I don't think it's passed yet because you've still seen rumblings of is Bloomberg. Michelle Obama Bloomberg. I've, I've heard Bloomberg still has his uh, political team together just in case Biden keeps dropping. So uh, he'd probably be a moderate candidate, wouldn't yeah. you think? Oh yeah, he's very moderate. He used to be Republican, then he you know ran as a Democrat, and he switched switched back and forth whenever because he's right in the middle. Right, so. and and he's actually toyed with the idea of uh, running as an independent. And I, honestly, I like him better than the rest of the Democrats, but I'm not a Democrat, so that doesn't mean much. <laughs> right. I think uh, I actually saw a, a friend of mine who's a Republican post the other day. They said, well. If Donald Trump is not going to be president in the future, we wouldn't mind seeing Bloomberg be president because he is business minded. He he has the economy at the forefront. Um, you know, he is one that uh, you wouldn't mind looking out for you in terms of the economy. So yeah. um, he that would be interesting. I, I did read some articles that he's still not not put that to bed that he's considering running for president. But if he does, he's not going to run as an independent. It looks like he's going to jump in as a Democrat, yeah. and he. You know, he has the benefit of, I don't have to fundraise. Uh, yeah. he, he wouldn't have to fundraise at all. He could jump into the election. Uh, was he at $50 billion or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah 50 just, $60 billion. He's just so fun. Take a, take a one-hundredth of that and, uh, and run an election and, and be able to compete all the way through. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what is the appetite of the Democratic Party right now. Um, is the appetite for a progressive candidate like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren? Uh, or is the appetite for... Uh, the moderate, still the dominant force in the Democratic Party. Do we want a candidate that maybe would be a safe bet, like a Joe Biden, that uh, may be able to beat Donald Trump easier? Or do we want to uh, you know, go big and nominate a progressive like Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, where their policies might not play well in some of the swing states, and they, ha they may have to be sold a little bit more. I mean, their candidacy may have to be sold a little bit more to the voters. So it's going to be interesting. Um, we have the first primary election. The first primary election is, as you know, it's always uh, Iowa. Uh, that's been a, a tradition in, in American politics for a long time. And actually, we're going to talk it talk about uh, sort of election reform and um, and uh, kind of reformatting elections in our next segment. But we've got Iowa. And then we've got uh, South Carolina and Nevada. And then after that, there's Super Tuesday, uh, which you know is when many of the states in the in the United States vote. And Texas is included in that. California is in that. So, you know, if candidates haven't gained traction by Super Tuesday, uh, you know, then you're going to really start to see the dominoes fall in terms of who's who's dropping out of the race. So, as we record future episodes of this, let's let's pick up. And uh, you know, discuss the, the the situation at hand, and kind of see where things play out. Welcome back to segment three of our inaugural <laughs> podcast of Stuck in the Middle here. Josh, in the first segment, we really just introduced the goal of the podcast and what we plan to accomplish with it. In the second part, we talked about the current state of affairs and the election on the both the Republican and Democratic side. And I want to issue a quick correction. So I just talked about the different primary election dates, and uh, I misspoke on those. Um, Iowa, I was correct, is first. Then we've got New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. And then March the 3rd is Super Tuesday, and it's the one 
where uh, a large portion of the states in the United States vote in that, but uh, I misspoke in the first segment, so wanted to correct that there. In this third segment, I want to focus on um, maybe the format of elections, uh, the way they're structured, and maybe poss possibly some reforms that could benefit our democracy. And uh, the, f the first part of that really entails you know, how elections are funded. So uh, for those of you listening, you know, you probably have some interest in politics. You probably know that elections are fueled by donations. And unless a candidate is independently wealthy, which there are several that do have their own money and they've chosen to self-fund uh, all or most of their campaign. But in the absence of being independently wealthy, you know, a donation donations from individual people are how uh, how elections are funded. And um, in the United States, there are campaign contribution limits. Uh, and the, uh, the current contribution limit is $2,800 for an individual. So, uh, uh, you know, a couple, married couple can give $5,600 to a candidate. That's the, the limit in an election. And I've thought about this issue for a few years, really. Is is this, may, is this the best way to format an election? Um, I know that it takes money to run an election, but if you, if you think about how the candidates would run their election, are their decisions going to be based on maybe what their donors support, uh, you know, because they rely on those donors for continued support and maybe their donors will bring other donors to the table. So Josh, I don't know what your ideas are, but I, you know, I, I think that we should seriously consider maybe alternate ways of funding, uh, particularly presidential elections. I'll leave congressional and and, uh, and gubernatorial elections for another discussion. But if you talk about the presidential election, the one that everyone in the United States get to, gets to participate in, should we think about a different way of funding elections? Should we should we maybe talk about uh, public funding of elections? And I know that that's a controversial topic, but you know, the way that public funding of elections works is uh, a candidate would be given a set amount of money by the taxpayer, you know, set X amount of money for one candidate, X amount of money for the other candidate. That's the money that they're both given. And then they run their election based on that. And then they're not allowed to solicit donations from the public. They just run their campaign based on the issues that they support or don't support. Uh, I think that's almost impossible to do. I think it's, it's a great idea, but it, it might be impossible to do. Um, there are some, uh, countries, I don't know, I can't remember which ones, but I remember vaguely that there are some countries that, um, you know, they, they don't allow you to run your own campaign ads and all that on TV, but they do give you, let's say everyone gets three hours of primetime television right. on the major channels all the candidates get that and they get to use it how they want. So whether that be like they break that up or they just go on and give like a town hall online and prime time, they break that up and give that to each candidate, but then they don't allow them to like buy all these ads and everything else. I think that's a really interesting approach, uh, but they can still like, you know, fundraise and, and run their campaigns on the ground, but you can't buy up all the screen time and, and everything else. But I don't know. I, there's all these different ideas, but I, I just think it's it's so hard to implement them um, and then figure out how much each candidate gets and at which level they get. So that's the interesting thing is like, how do you 
change over to something that drastic. Well, it, it's uh, I'm glad you brought up other countries because, you know, the United States is unique in terms of how long our elections last. You know, it was it's two years into uh, <laughs> a president's first term when the other party starts running for president. Right. And, you know, they start uh, announcing that they're running for president, building that uh, foundational support, you know, getting those initial donors, feeling out what's the support like for, for a possible candidate for those people. But in other countries, I think some of the elections are as little as 60, 30, 60 days long, and uh, the public stays stays uh, in tune for that period of time. But the rest of the time, they let the incumbent govern, and uh, there's not a drawn-out election process. I think that also speaks to some of the reforms that we need to see. Do we? Does our society benefit from these long, drawn-out elections where candidates are traipsing around the country for two years? They're constantly having to generate new donations to stay relevant. Uh, the Democratic Party right now, you see that they're they're having to raise the bar for candidates to qualify for the party to try in hopes of of uh, having some candidates drop out that don't meet the threshold so that right. they can start consolidating their candidates but but uh, I know there's a lot of intricacies to you know maybe public financing and and people would argue that maybe that uh, limits free speech and and people may argue that money is speech me giving to a candidate is my way of saying that I support that candidate but the other side to that is, you know, not everybody can afford to give to a political candidate or, or doesn't just doesn't have the resources to support a political candidate, but they do want to be involved in the political process in other ways other than voting. So if you have a you have a public financing of elections, then people can get out and they can knock on doors and they can they can block walk and they can uh, attend town halls and in support of their candidates. And then really everyone's voice is kind of equal because you don't see donors or large name donors kind of leading the fight in the election. Uh, it's just another thing that you're like, okay, where does this money come from? It comes from taxes. And so this is another thing I've got to I've got to pay taxes for more idiots to run for office. You know, it's right. Like, you know, at some at some point, it's like, you know, how much do you? I'm a small government guy, so how much bigger does government have to get before it's like taking over every? You know. And I get that too. I, I mean, I think when we can avoid having government interventions, then we should. I also believe in small government when necessary. I'm just thinking through, would you agree with me that uh, maybe some people in our political or in our society have more political influence than they should? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, the fact that a billionaire can self-fund and, and immediately be a front runner might be an issue. Uh, you know, the fact that corporations can outgive. Um, you know, everyone else through like, what do they say? Dark money and all this, all right. these different ways to hide, you know, their contributions and packs and super packs and all this stuff. So, I mean, it's a very convoluted system that nobody understands. I have no idea how it works. Right. But, and I think if you're not like a, an elections attorney uh, or that's, that's studied in this topic, then it's really difficult to navigate. And um, my goal in really having this discussion is to say that, uh, um, you know, there is, there's a lot of money in politics and, uh, I think some of it could be removed, uh, in hopes of really just talking about the issues and not, um, not just trying to please donors. And this isn't a partisan, I'm not meaning this in a partisan manner. I mean, there are interest groups on, on the left and on the right that uh, spend heavily and contribute heavily to candidates. They spend, uh, money on packs and super packs and run television ads and, and try to get their message across. But if you eliminate all that noise and you just give the power to back to the voter, um, does our democracy benefit? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely a case to be made for that. Well, um, you know, uh, if you all are listening to this, uh, give us your feedback on this. I mean, how how should the how should the election process be reformed? Do you think it's acceptable to leave it like it is and and have donations come from individuals? Should we explore a public financing option? Uh, what are the other ways that uh, that we can make elections more equitable? And uh, we'd love to hear your your you know your feedback on that issue. Um, speaking of election reform, um, we just talked about in segment two that uh, some of the primary elections are going to be uh, gearing up. And uh, it's a bit interesting that in the United States, some states vote earlier or later than others. And uh, it's been a tradition in America that Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina are given early primary and caucus dates. And uh, the voters in those states really value kind of being first and getting the most attention from candidates. Um, you know, if you're a real political junkie, it would be great to go to the Iowa State Fair or go to some of the events in New Hampshire because you have the opportunity to see those candidates multiple times, meet them, talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. You'll see them in diners. You'll see them in barbershops. You'll see them out, uh, you know, eating corn dogs. You'll see them really <laughs> interacting with the voters. But on the flip side of that, if you live in a state like Texas or uh, if you live in uh, Michigan or Minnesota or pick, a, pick another state out of a hat – you know, you're going to see those candidates less often. And uh, because of the way the election process works, you know, uh, candidates that have momentum coming out of Iowa, coming out of New Hampshire, coming out of Nevada, those candidates that have placed first, second, third, maybe even fourth, they're going to feel like they can continue plowing on and, and, uh, and continuing their election. So I've often been an advocate of a national primary election. Um, I believe that every voter in the United States should have the same say-so at the same time, and we shouldn't have these staggered primaries because you're diluting the ability of another American citizen to vote on their preferred candidate. And really, actually, I've, I've talked to several people who have said in the past, well, I'm going to support the candidate that uh, is already winning. I want to see that candidate win because they have the momentum and I want them uh, I want to throw my support behind the, you know, behind the front runner and uh, maybe they change their vote based on how other elections have gone. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, should we should we advocate for that or is is there any benefit to a staggered primary? I don't think there's a benefit to it. I think it it gives the states too much power, but I I'd love to hear their thoughts on it too. Um you mentioned, you know, seeing these guys out eating corn dogs. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, the you got to be careful eating corn dogs in public because you never know who's taking a picture and going to turn it into a meme. Like, uh, didn't that happen to uh, Governor Rick Perry where he's eating a corn dog at the fair? Yeah, I mean, the, every action of a politician is is scrutinized, and uh, you have to know in. that they're they know they're always on camera, but they're at the same time they're trying to appease to the voters, <laughs> and they're willing to do goofy things to try to win over voters. I mean, you'll see candidates out at the fair making funnel cakes or you know serving turkey legs. And, you know, it's interesting how presidential politics works, but that's because of the staggered primary that you see so much attention and so much focus on those particular elections. Um, you know, the candidates, they go to Iowa just to scope out, you know, the, a possible candidacy years before they might even consider running just to they'll attend um, you know, maybe a small town political gathering just to see how they might be received. And other states don't get that same attention. So if we want a fair, equitable 
a reasonable process, uh, you know, we should encourage both parties, both the DNC and the RNC to say, okay, we're going to switch to a national primary. How would that influence how candidates campaign? Would they run more national ads? Would they spend time in every single state? Would they organize their staff differently? Oh, yeah, you'd have to, because right now, uh, you know, a lot of them don't have a ton of money, so they'll just spend all their money in the front, hoping that they'll get enough traction and then the money will come in later. And you'd have to change that strategy. You couldn't do that anymore. Well, absolutely. But, uh, you know, changing the strategy might not necessarily be bad. It would no. just be, yeah. uh, you know, you might offend some of the voters in those early states because it's been the way of the world for so many years and so many election cycles. But I think that, you know, other voters deserve just as much say so as anybody else. And, yeah. and again, not a partisan issue here. This is just, I think it's true for both both uh, political parties. I think there's a good chance, too, that it drives down um, attendance in the primary because you're you're feeling like, uh, okay, I don't, I'm not in one of these swing states or I'm not in an Iowa or New Hampshire, so my my primary vote doesn't really matter. It's already over by the time it gets to us. And I've actually heard anecdotal evidence of that. That yeah. uh, well, my candidate is already winning. Uh, I don't, I yeah. don't, I don't feel the need to go out and and cast my ballot. It takes time, and I've got children, I've got obligations. So why am yeah. I going to waste time? You already see that in the general election. You yeah. know, in in red and blue states that are solidly red and blue. You know, there's untold people that just don't go vote because quote their vote doesn't matter. So it's insane to me too because. All the down ballot stuff that's your local guys is arguably, you know, you're going to have more effects that you actually feel locally, but nobody realizes that. They only, they only realize, oh, okay, I'm voting for, you know, the president. All that down ballot, the down local, ballot. <laughs> local yeah. stuff probably affects you, your day-to-day -day life more than the president, uh, you know, arguably. You know, they're going to raise your property taxes or lower your property taxes or, or whatever they do. You know, and that's going to affect you day to day more than like necessarily the the general. That's why it's actually quite an interesting phenomenon that local elections see such a decline in voter turnout. I get that there's a lot more enthusiasm and a lot more interest and attention given to the presidential election and even the the congressional elections. But like you said, the local elections also matter. They're deciding property taxes. They're deciding, you know, um, what kinds of businesses are coming in and out of your town. They're they're the ones that are really going to be affecting your day to day life in the town that you town community county that you live in. So. You know, we should probably be paying more attention to local elections, and um, it's just not happening right now. So, if uh, if any of you uh, have an interest in this topic and election reform, feel free to to let us know about that. We can expand on it or bring some of the comments back uh, in future podcasts. Again. The goal of this podcast is to create a political dialogue that we can all appreciate. I mean, I think much of the discussion right now is too polarizing. You know, you see people that uh, don't want to have political discussions for fear that uh, their political opinions will be demonized, or you just see that uh, there seems to be an inability to have uh, you know, constructive political dialogue. And Josh and I hope that uh, through this podcast, we can open up dialogue and bring new and interesting topics to the forefront. And uh, we hope that you'll tune in and we look forward to uh, having you listen in on the next episode.